I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order From Ashes, Century International's podcast. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Lund, who's on the line from Sweden. And we're getting together because of the terrible events that uh, happened yesterday from the time we're recording, a few days ago by the time you're listening to this podcast, in Turkey and Syria. Originally, uh, we had planned to talk anyway about a report that Aaron Lund wrote uh, recently about the cholera epidemic in Syria and its human-made and transnational dimensions. Uh, but it, unfortunately, because of this tragic turn of events, we now have another reason to talk about the same set of, of, uh, of problems, the, uh, the collapse of governance and the human toll of what happens when, uh, when governance fails us. So uh, I'm sorry for the occasion for this conversation, but Aaron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So to, to begin with, uh, I want to ask about uh, something that you've researched a lot and written about a lot, which is the just very practical problems with access for humanitarians to the millions of displaced uh, in northern uh, Syria. Uh, and and to the extent that it's relevant, uh, uh, you can talk about how the population of displaced Syrians in uh, southern Turkey is affected by these uh, the same sort of complicated access regime. Right. So, yeah. So the the Syria is has been for several years now a kind of a semi-frozen conflict with front lines that don't really move a lot. And in the northwestern corner of Syria, you have an area or several areas where uh, rebel groups, Sunni Islamist groups and and uh, just generic <laughs> rebels of various kinds, hold power with, with Turkish backing. There are Turkish troops in those areas as well. Idlib is the largest area, but you also have parts of... Uh, of the of the Aleppo province, Afrin and, and northern Aleppo, uh, that that connect to that, and those areas are some of the most devastated and 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 war torn parts of Syria. Uh, they were early starters in the uprising against Assad. They're the basically there was armed conflict all along in those areas, and they've been starved and shelled and destroyed. And you have a lot of displaced people who live in those areas. And so how, and then this, as our listeners will be aware, is also right at the epicenter of the February 6th earthquake. Uh, about how many million people uh, live in, in this uh, area outside of government control in, in Syria now? Well, the estimate that the UN uses uh, and humanitarian actors use is 4.2 million. Um, it's, it's not clear if that's correct. Some earlier estimates by these same sources have been too high, but it's clearly millions of people, and it's clearly uh, a large, very, very vulnerable population. Uh, humanitarian data also says that nine out of ten need humanitarian assistance of some kind to to survive, basically. So, how? Um, and and this is where where geopolitics and bad governance really uh, intersect with 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 human misery in a terrible and avoidable way. How, uh, what are the pathways for international aid or humanitarian aid to, to reach this population? I mean, on a, in, a, in a normal world, so to speak. So the, the, the normal route would be from Damascus, from the capital, from, from inside Syria. That's where the UN offices are. That's where the, store, the, uh, the warehouses are. That's where you can fly in aid or drive in aid or ship in aid. But in Syria, that hasn't been the case because really early on in the war, 
Assad government started to use humanitarian aid delivered by the UN and others and exploit his control as the sovereign recognized ruler of Syria uh, to basically just ban UN officials from, from working in these areas and going into these areas. And also, of course, his security control on the ground. Uh, the checkpoints wouldn't let the convoys pass. So from in, in 2014, the UN Security Council uh, adopted a resolution, which Russia unusually uh, agreed to, that allows aid to come from Turkey instead, without Assad having any say-so over that. Uh, and that has that system has has it has been whittled down piece by piece, but it still exists. And there's one border crossing left of the original four that goes from Turkey into the Idlib area, uh, which is the largest part of that uh, northern rebel-held territory, uh, the Bab al-Hawa border crossing. And that's where all the UN uh, coordinated and UN-supported aid needs to go into Syria, to, to, to that part of Syria. Uh, and, and this has created this kind of splintered uh, uh, aid flow into Syria. So you have aid coming in through Damascus or through the government, held areas, and, and that goes to most of Syria. But then these specific parts of Syria that are now at the center of the, uh, the earthquake, um, they need aid from Turkey. And and is is it my is it correct that most of the uh, hardest hit areas by the earthquake are in the, uh, coincidentally, in the rebel-held parts of Syria? Yeah, that seems to be the case. I mean, that Probably there's also a lot of devastation in, in governmental areas, but it seems to be the case that the, I mean, this is a strip of of land that just runs along the border of the Turkish provinces that have been most severely hit. So I mean that that makes sense. That's also what we're seeing from 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 the reporting. Okay, so so we have this choke point of Bab el Hawa where all the all the aid has to come in that's going to reach this this area. So to the extent you know, uh, and and I know information is still sort of hard to come by in this fast changing environment we're in right now. Uh, how one are there physical impediments? Cause I had heard reports that there was, that there was physical damage around Bab el Hawa that was making uh, it just actually technically uh, that some of the roads were closed and the approaches to Bab el Hawa were closed. So one are there physical impediments because of the earthquake to use of this crossing and two uh and sort of you know geopolitical and like getting things done terms how big of a problem is it uh to try and 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 direct in this already really overwhelmed situation uh any aid uh from anywhere abroad or in turkey that's going to go to syria through this one single crossing point right so no well the last i heard the the crossing is closed They've they've closed the entire cross border response because the 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 infrastructure is wrecked. The borders are the sort of the, the the roads are broken. The airports are are out of function. Uh, electricity's down uh, in many places, and everything is just it's just collapsed. And the headquarter of this whole thing, uh, the UN's sort of branch office that handled northwestern Syria is in Gaziantep, which is the city that was really, really badly hit by, by the earthquake. So you have this double effect of the the, the damage uh, in Idlib needs to be treated by areas in Turkey or from areas in Turkey that have also been damaged. And and right now it's not happening at all. So the, uh, the solutions here, of course, you need to get that 
you, you know, get those roads back in, in order really quickly and, and get those, you know, supply chains back to work. Well, so, so let's, I mean, in, 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 uh, okay. So in the, in the real world, uh, that we live in, in times of extremists, some of these really convoluted and crazy arrangements, like, uh, like the one we're talking about where, we depend on Russian approval and Damascus approval and all these complicated things to, to uh, allow a cross-border aid, aid crossing. In, in, in real life, there's lots and lots of, of physical border crossings between Turkey uh, and Syria. Uh, some of them are, are used by people, but not by international aid and so on. So are there, are there solutions here that are, uh, you know, practical, but against the rules or are there rule changes or policy changes that can be decided within, you know, sort of instantaneously that would open up pathways uh, for, for a couple of days or a couple of weeks to allow a humanitarian response that uh, occurs outside of this, uh, uh, restrictive, um, and convoluted framework. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the easy option is that Turkey and nations working with Turkey just go in across the border, regardless of what Damascus says or Russia says, because these areas are held by the Turkish army with, with the allied rebel groups and they control the border. No one's going to stop them. The UN can't do that because the UN is run as an organization of sovereign states and Syria as a member. It just doesn't work legally. So this um, would have to be bilateral aid or or, or other international yeah, like aid outside Crescent of- or NGOs and yeah, that kind of thing. And that's you can still deliver a lot of aid like that. But the problem all along has been that the UN has this. I mean, they they the UN agencies are they're big. They can procure things, you know, at scale. They have this organ, the OCHA, which is the coordination body, uh, which knows how to. You know, measure who needs the aid, where should it go, how do we plan that, how do we set up warehouses, where do we drive the convoys, and that kind of expertise that no single actor really has at that level. So that's always been the problem. Uh, if it weren't for that, you could just get, you know, allow the UN to be kicked out and do it without them. But 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 the UN really has a hard to replace role there. And at this point, I mean, the the those resources, and especially the Turkish resources, of course will be used for the response in Turkey, I think. So is there a, uh, a political or diplomatic step that could be taken now? Or, I mean, presumably the need uh, is going to continue to be really uh, high for weeks to come in the in, even in the aftermath of the immediate earthquake response. Uh, is there a diplomatic response, something the international community can do or powerful uh, states in the UN to secure some kind of... Um, temporary uh uh pause to the to the cross-border framework like like how would it work and who would need to agree to it uh to 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 change this order for even a couple of weeks and and would that would a couple of weeks be useful in this case well either you have two options basically there are the sort of the easy options and one of them is that Bashar al-Assad decides to allow convoys to cross the border at other points with you know you and you and people can go in and out without you know, through other crossings or wherever they want, or they can come cross frontline from Damascus. That is already happening at very, you know, like a, a small scale thing. But if they could support that and facilitate that and everyone works together, then that can be scaled up. Uh, will Assad do that? You know, historically, he's been terrible at everything that has to do with humanitarian aid. Uh, well, and, the, and this is a population that he particularly 
wants to punish, right? These are these yeah, are people exactly. who supported the rebels. Um, yeah. I would imagine, based on past experience, that he'll be uh, happy or at least uh, 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 find it politically useful for them to, to suffer. Yeah, but I think there is a a a, a glimmer of hope here because Assad might not care about those people in Idlib. He may even want them to starve. But he does care about his relationship to Russia. He does care about his relationship to Turkey. And he does care about getting aid to his parts of Syria. So insofar as these things are connected to these other things, he may see reason to you know, show goodwill or, or cooperate. And it could also be helpful in his and Russia's campaign to roll back the whole cross-border construct and sort of restore the control over humanitarian aid to Assad alone or to the Syrian government alone. But I mean, he, he controls that. Uh, they, you know, the, the whole thing will be up for vote again in, in the Security Council in July when Russia can veto it. And if Assad has by then been cooperative and shown that he can be you know, he can allow aid to come from Damascus and Homs and other cities under his control to Idlib, uh, then the Russians will have a better hand in the Security Council. You know, something like that might might help at this moment, but that will create new political conflicts ahead, of course. And and, and I was just going to say that the other option, yeah, so the other, the, the one option is that Assad decides to, to, to not be a, a dick about this. And the the other option is that the Security Council decides something, and that again requires Russia to to play along and not veto it. And Russia has in the past been willing to abstain in in situations like this, right? If if not, yeah, right? so, yeah. Uh, so is it, it, and and sorry, sorry, we're interrupting you again. But I think that's the other thing here. Uh, Russia has very you know intense, complicated, but also kind of good ties with with Turkey. And they're very important to Russia for many reasons. Big neighbor, but also the Ukraine war, control of the Black Sea axis, uh, lots of sort of arrangements in Syria and Libya and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, other places. So Turkey needing this to work might be something that makes Russia want to play along putting pressure on Assad. And Assad might also want to please the Turks because... December 28, his defense minister met the Turkish defense minister for the first time in, in well, 11 years, right? Uh, and they've started a kind of tentative political normalization. And that's very important for Assad. Uh, and if this is something that can prod that process along, or rather if he were to refuse now and that would break the whole uh, normalization project in pieces, then you know he might find that Feeding some people in Idlib is not that bad of an idea. Are there any indications from Damascus now, statements from uh, from the presidency or from the foreign minister or other officials that give you a read one way or another of what uh, what flexibility might be on offer from Damascus now? Well, I haven't seen all of the statements, and I think it's something that's going to be resolved behind closed doors anyway. But I did see that like a small encouraging thing was at the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, which is the local wing of the Red Crescent, uh, on basically under government control. Uh, they said they can deliver aid to any part of Syria. And of course, that would only happen with with government approval, and that might come with conditions attached. So what does that really mean? We don't know. But, but that kind of, I hesitate to call it a solution, but that kind of, um, that, that would be an option to, to, to get aid into the area. And I think probably you need all of these things. 
you need to get the roads back in order in, in southern Turkey and get the UN operation going there. But you might also need aid from inside Syria. Well, so this seems like the kind of nightmare scenario that uh, that people have been worrying about for years and years uh, during, you know, every six months there are these uh, uh, discussions over the cross-border agreement. There's always a sort of, you know, showdown and then last minute agreement at the UN. There's been this steadily whittling down of access. Um, and, you know, from, I think we've talked about this before, even on this podcast, maybe some years ago, uh, that, you know, this is barely tenable in the best of times. And you have, you know, you say four, more than 4 million people bottled up in this, in this, rural area that used to house a fraction of that population. And there are people living almost wholly dependent on aid. Uh, and it's not really livable under the best normal circumstances. And then you get a, 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 a huge uh, pressure created by something like this earthquake now. Um, I know I know the folks who, who've been fighting against the existing cross-border arrangement have raised the specter of, of the sort of unexpected event like this as a, as the reason why this is not tenable. Does, uh, does this in any way, um, you know, change the, the, the way the, the, the political dynamics around uh, cross-border access or the way people are going to talk about this, this really makeshift arrangement that's, that's been uh, accepted for such a long time in, in this whole chunk of, of Northern Turkey, uh, Northern Syria. I mean, I'm sure it will uh, because it does show how absurd the whole thing has been. And, but, but the, it comes down to what is the option, you know, well, what's the other way of doing this? And the conflict is what it is. It is frozen in place. And as long as it is, you need some form of of, of a supply channel to keep people alive. Um, and that's what it is, you know? And and I, I don't really see a solution <laughs> emerging from this, but there will be pressure for some sort of change to it, I think. Uh, and a lot depends, frankly, on how the Syrian government decides to deal with this. Uh, because it has that special power to allow or disallow uh, UN access to these areas. And I think that could be something that 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 really shapes the discussion of the cross-border uh, system going forward. so we have we have some clues uh, about about the long-term uh, way Damascus conceives of its equities in in, in and over these rebel areas, uh, and and one insight is is, is or, or one set of insights are the insights that you uh, brought us by your study of the cholera uh, epidemic, uh, and I, you know I think it's it's worth taking a minute now to to turn to what what you found and what you learned from looking at how cholera has spread. Uh, around Syria over the last uh, year plus, um, and and now across international borders, uh, because I think that does uh, tell us some things about the human-made governance catastrophe and the borderlessness of the crises, uh, while at the same time we're very much rooted in the state-centric uh, uh, policymaking and, and, and power of governments like Assad. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit uh, first of uh, what what actually happened and, and where we are with this uh, cholera epidemic, and then we'll, we can connect it uh, to the the sort of new new conditions on the ground uh, since uh, since the earthquake. Sure. Um, so, uh, I think the, the the first cases of cholera were registered in Syria in August twenty five or something like that. So it's not a year; it's more more 
half a year plus. Um, and since then, it has spread throughout Syria uh, to Lebanon as well. You have something like 85,000 cases, uh, suspected cases registered in Syria. Uh, there might be many more. Uh, I don't know. Uh, close to 90 probably now. Uh, and the origin of all that was that people were drinking dirty water from the Euphrates River. And now Syrians are not stupid. They know you should not drink water from a river that is, you know, the end station of any number of sewage pipes and industrial uh, waste uh, pipes. But they have no choice because Syria is going through a really, really severe water crisis. Uh, before the war, you had, I think, 98% of the urban population was able to drink clean water piped into their homes or to, to their area. And something like 92% of the rural population, these are pretty good numbers for a, for a country in the Middle East. But now you're down to like half of the population and the rest have to get their water some other way. And typically that is, you know, either via aid organizations or very commonly you buy it from a guy who shows up with a tanker full of water, which he probably just got by filling it from the, in, the, in the nearby river. And there's no security control, no purification, nothing. And that's how waterborne disease spreads. And at the same time, we've also seen sanitation systems breaking down and water scarcity in some areas of Syria that has been so severe that people, and this is, I cite this in the report from some UN, or sorry, from, from humanitarian uh, surveys in northeastern Syria, people have so little water that they cannot even uh, use water to wash their hands because they need to conserve it to drink it, and and that's not clean water. Uh, and that in in that in those conditions, uh, waterborne disease will spread eventually, and now it happened. And I think this is an illustration of the you know the the idea that Syria can just be left to decay institutionally and economically, socially, uh, without that sort of exploding in everyone's faces is ridiculous that i mean this is what happens and eventually there will be an earthquake eventually there will be you know some other phenomenon that no one else thought of in advance same thing we've seen throughout the war you know with 2014 the islamic state comes seemingly out of nowhere uh russia intervenes you know these these shocks that no one expected that sort of changed the game and even if the conflict looks frozen in the sense that the front lines the military um, the war is not moving, that does not mean that there isn't tremendous change on the socioeconomic level and humanitarian level. And UN data backs this up because the, the last round of humanitarian needs, uh, the, the, the big study they release once a year to sort of predict the needs in, in Syria for the coming year, which came around the turn of the year now, uh, those, that, that data was the worst seen since the beginning of the war. And, you know, this is at a point where Fighting is is the the lowest point since 2011, since the crisis began. Right, this is such an important so it, point because I think uh, when when people hear frozen conflict, they think of you know a World War One trench line where you know everything is yeah. fixed in place. And in fact, these are very dynamic uh, societies. People are moving around. There's a huge amount of interplay uh, within Syria between rebel-held and non-rebel-held areas, and and uh, between Syria and its neighbors. Um, and that is, uh, you know, th th this is this is a 
social context that is very much transnational and not bordered. Uh, like you said, we saw that with ISIS. We saw that with the movement of displaced people during the Syrian war. We see this with the movement of uh, of disease. Um, and of course, uh, uh, very sadly, we see it with the, the impact of the earthquake, which again, uh, recognizes no borders, although the response and the, the lived human experience in response to it is very much rooted in the the state-centered geopolitical arrangements. And that's this very, I think, catastrophic mismatch between the way these areas are, are administered uh, by, you know, in many cases, failed or failing or very weak states um, and the way in which people live, which is very much uh, without uh, uh, a whole lot of limitation by national border or, or citizenship. Hmm. Exactly. I, I mean, I think that is the conclusion of the report. The, the report ends, it starts with cholera and it goes into, you know, sees the root cause of that being the water crisis. And then like, what's the reason for that? Well, uh, there's destruction of, of water pumping stations and all that. There's drought, there's conflicts around dams, and there's uh, the energy crisis that prevents pumping and machinery from working and uh, lots of reasons. But like the, the fundamental thing to realize, I think, is that uh, the these, the, you know, the the Syria as it is now, and as you described it, you know, mismatch between the physical and the humanitarian conditions and the sort of formal state-centric order uh, that doesn't it doesn't apply anymore because you have areas that are not under the control of the state and areas conversely where other states interfere with with things in Syria. That mismatch is not something that's going to go away. I think. Uh, unless there is some very violent and probably very gruesome military sort of end uh, to the conflict, which I, I doubt because there are so many foreign powers involved that sort of prevent that from happening, then this is going to go on in some form. Maybe not exactly as today, but but in some form. And as long as the internal economics of that situation are not allowed to play out and function. And and as long as the country is not allowed or helped to recover economically, then we will continue to have that internal uh, decay and, and transformation to something worse and that growing vulnerability to external shocks, which you know we've seen now in the most, most obvious form in the form of an earthquake. Is there any, uh, uh, I mean, do you expect cholera itself to uh, to drastically increase uh, in the aftermath of this earthquake because of all the sort of obvious reasons of uh, uh, you know people living in the in the way they're having to live with not being able to be in their homes and and do you expect cholera to spread into Turkey well I'm not a not an epidemiologist but 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 you know why not because you have all these displaced people going around because you have uh, reports already of, of, of damage to water systems and, and reservoirs. And you have, um, you know, people will be packed into telt camps. The the resources that were spent on, on handling the cholera outbreak uh, will not be there anymore, I think, because they will be needed for other things, for, for emergency medicine. Uh, and Idlib, which is at the center of this again, uh, is actually the province that is worst hit by the cholera outbreak. It didn't start there. It spread there. But at this point, before the earthquake, it had already surpassed the northeastern provinces where this began. But just because the population is so tightly packed into, into IDP camps and to tent camps and so on. 
and and now of course it's way way worse than it was so any uh i guess in as as we as we wrap up any conclusions or lessons learned from how uh Syria and others have responded or really failed to respond to the cholera uh, epidemic that are going to be instructive as we look at this next, you know, much more massive level of suffering in the aftermath of the earthquake? I, I think, again, it comes back to that basic conclusion that this situation is not something that you can wait out. You can't wait for Syria to have an end to the conflict or for some, you know, political agreement to materialize because there is no, it's not on the table. There may be arrangements to sort of formalize the division of the country, not in the sense of splitting it and partitioning it, but, you know, allowing cross-border, cross-frontline trade and, and sort of normalizing, routinizing all those things. But I don't think we're seeing a reunification of Syria anytime soon, if ever. And I think, given that these kinds of things will continue to happen, uh, what the world should aim for is to build Syrian resilience uh, beforehand, you know? Plan for this to be the future. Not because it's good, but because that's what it is. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast. We're all uh, we're all thinking with with heavy hearts and and following in excruciating detail the human uh, cost of this earthquake and the millions of people who uh, who are really scrambling to figure out how to get through the next couple of days, uh, uh, find and bury their dead, and then figure out where they're where they're going to live uh, for the rest of this cold winter uh, in the aftermath of this earth this earthquake. Uh, unprecedented earthquake that has hit northern Syria and southern Turkey. Uh, you can read Aaron Lund's report on cholera in the time of Assad, which unpacks the cholera epidemic and what it tells us about the human-made uh, causes of this health catastrophe and the lessons it holds for other catastrophes like this earthquake. Uh, you can find the report at tcf.org. It's Aaron Lund's cholera in the time of Assad. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on uh, Order from Ashes. Thank you. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.